This morning, as we continue our sermon series through uh, the big stories of the Old Testament, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, this is a recognizable story, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, this is a, a long chapter. I'm going to be sort of hopping and skipping through it, not reading all of it. And so you might want to just listen and not try to follow along, uh, but I certainly encourage you to have your Bible open as I, uh, as I get into preaching. Uh, let's pray before we read uh, the word of the Lord that he might send a spirit, that we might have ears to hear this text afresh. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. First Samuel chapter 17, hear the word of the Lord. It is written, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line a battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze." And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have 
You've seen this man who has come up. Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistines and takes the Philistine and takes away the, repro- the, the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go out against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there was There came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine came, moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known and often referenced stories in all of the Old Testament, easily the most beloved story from First and Second Samuel. The story by design is meant to stand out prominently in the reader's and hearer's mind. This is done by literary technique. For example, it is longer than any other Davidic narrative relating to a single battle with a foreign enemy. It also has more quotations than any other stories, including the longest quotation in First and Second Samuel placed on the lips of a named foreigner, Goliath. Further, the narrative is filled with little details that are usually excluded from other stories. And we see this level of detail in the description of Goliath's armor and weaponry and in the supplies that David brought to the troops, which included the number of loaves and cheeses he carried. The story then is written in a way to leave a mark. But then there is the story itself, which has become the quintessential story of the underdog, who against all odds is able to overcome a formidable opponent. And this story has left its mark. As one commentator put it, so compelling and well-known is the drama that it has become the primary historical metaphor in Western culture for describing any individual or group who overcomes seemingly insurmountable odds to defeat an oppressor. Indeed, so compelling has it been that it has inspired great art, like Michelangelo's masterpiece sculpture, David, which portrays a young and vulnerable David with nothing but a sling in his hand, going out to meet Goliath in battle. So compelling has it been that it has inspired hope for victory in the minds of countless multitudes who have come up against a mighty foe. And with as much as facing giants and slaying giants are images used in the culture around us, we can certainly attest to the reality that this story has created a prevalent metaphor, at least in the Western world. In fact, just this past week, as I've been thinking about this text and pushing into it, I've seen and heard this story referenced multiple times. Just on Friday night, as Elizabeth and I were watching a TV show, it was referenced. It's referenced in the news, especially in regard to geopolitical events and legal cases. Uh, We've seen it referenced uh, in stories about Ukraine and Russia, for instance. And certainly every time an individual or a small business stands up to some major corporation and wins in the court of law or in the business arena, we hear about David slaying Goliath. But let's not forget about sports. 
My goodness, how many times has this story gotten referenced, especially during the playoffs? How many sports movies have been made that carry this theme? But much like we discovered with the other stories, the text here is much deeper and richer than we often thought of it as little children. It also is much deeper and richer than how it's often used in popular culture. And I don't want to take anything away from those stories, but they're primarily stories about human effort and achievement. They're, they're stories about perseverance and courage in the face of extraordinary challenges. And there is a place for that sort of feel-good story, right? There's a place for facing the giants and rallying a football team for an epic battle on the gridiron. And we sort of like cheering for the underguard dog, don't we? We want to root for the little guy, unless, of course, the little guy's playing LSU. We want to believe in our hearts that anything is possible and that the big bully will be put in his place and that the the good guy will win. But as one commentator notes, the biblical narrative is not primarily a story about human courage and effort. Instead, it is about the awesome power of a life built around bold faith in the Lord. So even though David is seen as a great hero of the story, the focus isn't so much on David's masterful fighting skills as it is his courageous faith. It wasn't himself that he believed in. It was the Lord of hosts who is the one who gives victory. This is made clear if we examine this text closely and carefully. And, and we want to do that because I think we've also discovered this summer that the more familiar a story is to us, the more difficult it is not to prejudge its meaning and its significance. So as we look at this story this morning, we want to see what is really there. And there are a few highlights we want to take away. There are three things in particular that I want to note. First, the story challenges us to see the world through a divine perspective. David's reaction to Goliath helps us to do that. Second, even though David might be presented as young and inexperienced in warfare, the story makes a point to highlight that David's experiences had, in fact, prepared him for this moment. So we want to see how preparation is necessary if we are to succeed in the major battles of life. And third, as David ditches Saul's armor and sword to take on Goliath with a staff, stone, and sling, this story reveals to us that the spiritual giants that we might face aren't to be fought with the weapons and techniques of the world, but with the means given to us by God. So three highlights uh, that I'm calling divine perspective, spiritual preparation, and heavenly practices. So first, divine perspective. There's a purpose for all of this detail that is included in the story, and it's not simply to make the story memorable. It's to heighten the drama and to drive home the main point. And one of the ways it does this is in its description of Goliath. We're told that he was a giant of a man, nine feet tall, uh, nine inches. We're told of his armor. He was wearing a coat of armor weighing 126 pounds. We're also told that he had a bronze helmet on, bronze knee, and shin protectors. 
We're told he has a shield bearer who probably had a full body shield going before him. So we should be beginning to visualize him as this insurmountable opponent. But in addition to his massive size and seemingly impenetrable armor, we're also told of the weaponry he was carrying that would strike fear in the heart of any warrior. We're told that Goliath had a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders, and the Hebrew word is describing a, a, a curved sword. In addition to this weapon, he also had a massive spear. The spearhead alone weighed 15 pounds. Now, imagine having that thrust or hurled at you by an almost 10-foot-tall giant covered in shining armor from head to toe. Uh, Later in the chapter, David will mention that Goliath was also carrying a sword. Now, all of this is to produce a certain effect for the reader or hearer of the story. As one commentator notes, this passage presents the longest description of military attire in all the Old Testament. Goliath's physical stature, armor, weaponry, and shield bearer must have made him appear invincible. And this is certainly the sense that we get from the reaction of the Israelite army. They are terrified of him, paralyzed at the sight of him and the sound of his voice. We're told that when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. They were both unwilling and unable to confront him. So for 40 days, he came out morning and night to taunt them, heaping shame and insult on the Israelite army, mocking them as weak and cowardly, challenging them to send forth a man to fight him, winner take all, what is known as representative warfare. And this continued until young David arrived at the scene, bringing supplies to his brothers and the others on the front lines. While David was there, he overheard Goliath's heckling, and he was outraged that this man was showing contempt toward Israel and with them, their God. David was also outraged that all of Israel shrunk back from confronting Goliath and his blasphemy. So David asked, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And while all the others cowered, David demonstrated a willingness to fight Goliath, and word quickly went to Saul that someone was agreeable to meet Goliath in battle. So David was called before Saul, and here is where we learn this valuable lesson. You see, whatever enthusiasm and excitement that Saul had, that someone is willing to stand up to Goliath, quickly faded when he saw David. And David must have sensed that, for he immediately told Saul that no one should be disheartened by Goliath, that he was willing to fight him. But what did Saul do? Saul questioned David. He expressed doubt in David's ability to to fight and defeat Goliath. You're you're just a boy. Uh, Goliath is is a hardened and seasoned warrior, Saul told David. And don't miss David's response in verses 34 and following. Uh, David tells Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. David's response says it all. While everyone else saw Goliath as this unconquerable warrior, David saw Goliath as nothing more than a brutish animal, a a dumb beast equivalent to a lion or a bear. While everyone else saw Goliath's outward appearances and shuddered, David saw something very different. And it wasn't that he hadn't seen Goliath clearly. David didn't have blinders on regarding Goliath's size and power. But these things didn't impress David as they had Saul and the rest of Saul's army. What did impress David was the foolishness of this man who had dared to defy the God of Israel, an offense that David understood had mortal consequences. And so while everyone else was focused in on Goliath, his size, his brutality, his invincibility, David focused on God, his honor, his glory, his power, his will. David knew that he served the one true God, a God who was all-powerful and who would fight for all those who place faith in him, who loved him, who sought to serve him. David knew that he worshiped and served a God who would not be mocked, especially by some irreverent and blaspheming Philistine. So as one commentator put it, David entered the Valley of Elah with a God-dominated imagination. He was incredulous that everyone was cowering before the infidel giant. Weren't these men enlisted in the army of the living God. God was the reality with which David had to deal. Giants didn't figure largely in David's understanding of the way the world worked. The story then serves as an object lesson for what was taught in the previous chapter when God revealed to Samuel that it would be David, not his older, bigger, stronger, more handsome brothers who would be the next king. And we were warned there not to place too much stock in outward appearances. But this story reveals to us how tempting it is at times for us to have what one commentator called a Philistine realism a view of the world that is overly impressed with the way that things seem to be, a view of the world that's focused too much on the things of this world that seem to be big and powerful and not focused enough on the one who is actually sovereign over all things. It challenges us to consider what our pole star is. From what or who do we take our bearings? It challenges us to lift our minds to what is above. This is what the Apostle Paul encourages in his letter to the Colossians. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Our perspective on reality should never be determined merely by what we see in the world around us. We must think in heavenly-minded ways. And these things might be foolishness to the world. The same people who thought Goliath to be so significant also thought David to be so insignificant. 
but who had lost his head by the end of the chapter. This is exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ is to the world. Utter foolishness. Why would an all-powerful God come and enter into his creation and and put on human flesh in order to become a, a servant? And not only that, but to stand in the place of those who had rebelled against him and rejected him and to suffer the punishment that they deserved. Why would God do such a thing? It's ridiculous. It's foolishness. But this is exactly what Scripture declares that our God has done for us in his goodness and graciousness. And this world declares that the Christian faith is foolishness, outdated, delusional, a mere crutch for the weak on the wrong side of history. And sometimes we can look at this giant mocking world hurling insults and and we might shudder and begin to believe them. Perhaps our God isn't mighty to save. Maybe Jesus doesn't reign at the right hand of God. Maybe things won't be set right. Maybe might does make right. Don't believe it, brothers and sisters. Learn to look through the eyes of faith as David did when he looked at Goliath and saw one who was being given into his hand by the God of Israel. So the story isn't just about the little guy slaying the giant. It's about having divine perspective through which to see and to act. But there is a second lesson here. We must have divine perspective, but we must also have spiritual preparation. And we see this, and to see this, we must go back to this conversation between Saul and David. And we should notice in this conversation that David's youth and inexperience on the battlefield were highlighted by Saul. And Saul wasn't wrong about these things. David was not trained in combat. He was not an experienced warrior. And the whole narrative emphasizes that he was too young to serve in the army. And instead of instead was carrying out the somewhat menial task of of tending his father's sheep and and carrying rations to the troops. In fact, the narrative is purposefully drawing a contrast between David as a young shepherd boy and Goliath as the, the mighty warrior. And this isn't simply to highlight all the more how outrageous this matchup is between them. It's also meant to portray God's chosen leader to be a wise and caring shepherd. Notice the subtle little mention in verse 20 that before leaving to go to take the supplies, David left the sheep with a keeper. He was being a good shepherd, entrusting his sheep to another to ensure that they were cared for. And it was actually his work shepherding his flocks that prepared David for this battle. What did David appeal to when Saul raised doubts and concerns about his ability to defeat Goliath? David told Saul that he had defended the flock from lions and bears before and that he would do to Goliath just as he had done to those other animals. We need to understand the importance of this. 
We don't just step onto the battlefield and defeat a, a mighty enemy with no training whatsoever. We, we don't slay spiritual giants having never succeeded in spiritual warfare before. Our modern warriors, special operators in the United States military, have a saying regarding preparation for battle. It's this. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. We don't win battles because we imagine we can. The power of positive thinking is useless in the end if we don't have any real training. I can visualize myself hitting a 100-mile-an-hour fastball all I want, but if I have never stepped into a batter's box and swung a bat before, then I'm not going to succeed in even coming close to touching the ball. And this is the reality for us spiritually as well. Winning major spiritual battles requires us to have a daily walk with the Lord. It requires us to have sufficient knowledge of God's word and promises. It requires us to have a healthy prayer life. It requires us to have learned to trust and depend upon the Lord in the small stuff. It requires us to have faced trials and temptations and to have overcome them in the power of the Spirit. It requires us to have tasted the grace and forgiveness of God and to have experienced what it means to be alive in Jesus Christ. Only after we have fought and killed the lions and the bears of this world can we have the confidence to run to the line of battle against the Goliaths. But we should not misunderstand this to mean that it was by David's efforts that he was able to defeat Goliath. Look at what David says in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David doesn't in the end point to his skill and his strength. He gives credit to the Lord because the victory was not David's. It was the Lord's. He simply believed that God would deliver him once again. Dearly beloved, if we've never been in a position where we had to do more than simply stating we believed in God, where we actually had to place faith in the Lord, then chances are we aren't all of a sudden going to have faith to overcome when things get difficult and scary. When the word cancer is spoken, when we're given the pink slip at work, when our friends and families desert us, when things don't work out like we had hoped, and if we hope to trust in the Lord in that moment, then we need to see every opportunity as a moment of faithful obedience. It means every day should be a day of training. We should be learning to trust the Lord in all things. And if or when the moment comes when we are facing that Goliath temptation, that Goliath hardship, that Goliath disappointment we can stare it right in the face and boldly declare the Lord has brought me through temptation the Lord has brought me through trials the Lord has brought me through disappointment sickness loss we can with confidence declare that the Lord is gracious and intends good for us that he is ever faithful that his steadfast love for us endures that in him we have the victory even when it seems against all odds. 
This is what this story is about. It isn't just about a young boy who against all odds slayed the giant. It's about a young boy who had faith in the power of God to give victory, even in the face of a fierce enemy who was hurling, taunting threats because David had experiential knowledge of the God of Israel. Dearly beloved, the head of the serpent has been crushed. The head of the giant has been severed. Do you believe it? The time of preparation is now to grow in faith in such a way as to hold tightly to the promise that our God is mighty to save when it really counts. The story teaches us of divine perspective. It teaches us of spiritual preparation. There's one more lesson. It also teaches us of heavenly practice, of doing things according to the ways of God and not the ways of the world. After convincing Saul to let him fight Goliath, there's this interesting moment when Saul tries to give David the royal armor. And there's more there than we might initially recognize. Was it simply to show us that Saul's armor didn't fit because David was just a boy? Probably not. It could be revealing to us that Saul was really trying to dress David up in order that people might believe it was actually him out there fighting. Was Saul plotting to take credit for David's success should he be victorious? Maybe. But regardless, David puts on and then ultimately sheds Saul's armor. David realized the armor was going to be more of a hindrance than a help. And rather than going out to fight Goliath with a sword, spear, and shield, David instead takes his shepherding staff. He picks up five smooth stones from the brook and goes out to meet Goliath with his sling. And we shouldn't miss this. There is great significance here. There is great significance to David using the weapons of a shepherd to defeat Goliath and not the weapons of a warrior. And part of the significance is that there is a rejection here of Saul's kingship in shedding his armor. Uh, Saul's approach to kingship is shown to be weak and ineffective. Uh, Rather than trusting God, Saul shuddered before Goliath. Even though Saul was described in chapter 9 as one who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, Saul wasn't a small man. If there were anyone who was a match for Goliath, it was Saul. He had been anointed as king. He had experience fighting the Philistines. But he didn't have the courageous faith to confront Goliath. And while Saul chose to clothe himself as all the other kings and imagined himself to be like him, them, David is clearly shown here to be a shepherd, a good shepherd. He clothes and arms himself as a shepherd would. He doesn't go to the line of battle clothed in armor, carrying a mighty sword, weapons forged by men. He goes to the line of battle simply carrying a staff, a sling, and some river stones. And in a way, David is drawing our minds back to those great shepherd leaders who have gone before him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. This is the type of leader God desired for his people. So we're seeing a transition here from Saul to David, who had already been anointed as the new king in Saul's place. And just as Saul defeated the Philistines after being anointed, now too will David. But don't miss the tools David uses. A stick and stones, weapons 
given by God. You see, as one commentator notes, the phrase Saul's armor has entered Christian discourse as a metaphor for tools or methods of doing God's work that are inauthentic or inappropriate to our identity as servants and disciples of Jesus. These means are often professionally validated and carry connotations of expertise. So David shed Saul's armor and later declares to Goliath that God would deliver him into David's hand and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. And then David struck down Goliath and we are told there was no sword in the hand of David. Again, this story is about divine enablement rather than human devices, but the point is that we shouldn't be trying to fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons. We saw the same thing last week with the trumpets and shouting used at the Battle of Jericho. Sticks and stones will actually break bones, but the point is the same. We must see spiritual giants with divine perspective. We must be spiritually prepared to meet them when they come, but we must also engage them with heavenly practices. The means which God has given us in order that the world might know that our God is mighty to save and that all the glory belongs to him. And the world might mock these means just as Goliath jeered David. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David was confident in what the Lord had given him to fight though. He didn't walk to the line of battle, he ran. And with one stone, he killed Goliath. Too often though, we don't trust the weapons that God has given us. Why have a stone when you can have a sword and a spear? Why have a staff when you can have a shield? But we must learn to fight with prayer. Even when the world mocks prayer as ineffective, telling us that it isn't enough to pray, we must learn to fight with the word of God. Even when the world tells us that the message of an incarnate God who dies for the sins of his people is foolishness and the morals of God's kingdom are outdated, we must learn to fight with truth and love. Even when the world tells us that might and brutality and deceitful scheming are the way to get things done. Dearly beloved, we're going to face a lot of hostilities in this world. We can look around and, and we can be scared that the enemy we face is far bigger and more powerful than we can possibly handle, or we can get some divine perspective that God is on our side. We can ensure that we have spiritual preparation for the battle at hand. We can work through heavenly practices, remembering the weapon the Lord used to defeat the greatest enemy at all. The Lord faced that enemy with a stick in the form of a cross. In suffering death, he defeated death and overcame sin in order that a hostile world might be reconciled back to him. Dearly beloved, it's time to step up to the line of battle, unafraid and unashamed, seeking to bring renown and glory to our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you have revealed your will for us in your word. Lord, help us to have faith. Help us to believe that you are a God who fights our battles for us. 
help us to put trust in you. Lord, help us to see things as you see them, not simply as the world sees them. Lord, may this give us encouragement. May it give us hope for what is to come by your good providence. So Lord, help us this day to place faith in Jesus Christ who was a mighty warrior for us who defeated the greatest giant of all, death and sin. For it's in his name that we pray, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe.